Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Tarek. So let's all open our books to page one. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh. I know somebody out in the audience was thinking to themselves, he's got his big book. He's not going to read out of his big book, is he? Um, and I don't know if I'm going to read out of this book, but this book has a special place in my heart. It was given to me by the, the man who spoon-fed me the program of recovery as outlined in the big book. And, uh, you know, I've heard it. I heard a man say once that he asked a question of one of his friends, and the question was, uh, do you think you'll be able to take someone through the steps without using the big book? And the the friends said, "Well, that's that's heresy. I can't do that. You know, we're 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 big book enthusiasts, and we always have to use the big book." And you know, the mentor said, "If you live the way of life described in the big book, you will become the big book." And I'm not saying that in a way of knowledge. I'm using it more in terms of if we put into practical application the recipe that's in our big book, we will have an experience that will create a condition to sustain recovery. I won't say sobriety because I think sobriety sometimes is the problem for people like us. We are people that must have an effect produced. So the state of just sobriety for most of us, not all of us, is unbearable at times. And it only says that most of us, it, does, it says most drinkers drink for effect, not all. Um, and so we welcome everyone here, but the reason I bring this book up, it reminds me because there's no notes in the big book. And when you venture into the territory of the first step, the most important attribute that you can bring to that process is a blank mind. Because the longer I stay sober, the tighter the noose around my neck with all the information that's in my head. And so as I revisit the step work, you know, almost every year, and I go back to revisit a first step, I use this lay-aside prayer to set aside what I've learned up to this point and the experiences I've had up to this point so I can have an open mind and a new experience with this process. And so over the past 18 months since I received this book as a gift, when I do big book workshops and, you know, I speak about this, there's no notes in it. But for for nine and a half years, there was notes in here to trigger my mind, to remind me what I need to talk to. This keeps it fresh for me. It also forces me to dig deep, to pull out the experiences that I want to use. And it also forces me to use current experience, which is the most beneficial thing when you're working with a sponsee. So when I'm, t- I'm going through a first step and I'm trying to pull out their experiences, I can also relate some of my current experiences with unmanageability or powerlessness. Um, if I say I'm about to talk about something and I tell you I'm going to get to it later, it probably means I'm not going to get to it. Um, <laughs> A power greater than myself separated me from alcohol and all mind-altering substances on the morning of November 5th, 2007. And it's interesting. I can come at the first step from an academic perspective, um, but we're a storytelling society. And I'm telling you guys, if I reflect back on my experience here, my healing began when I heard one of you tell a part of my story because there's that part of me that sets me apart as a distinct entity and doesn't want anybody to come close to me you guys pulled me in by telling your stories and so the big book's crystal clear so tonight I need to describe in my own language and from my own point of view how I established my relationship with the first step but there are aspects of the first step that landed on me and established in me that I could not create on my own We're going to talk about the physical aspect. We're going to talk about the mental aspect. We're going to talk about the spiritual aspect of the first step. But there's a part of the first step that nobody in this room can work, and it's called surrender. And the only way I can illustrate 
my surrender is by sharing the story of my surrender. And it's funny. I don't think alcohol and these other outside issues would have ever done, would not have done so much to me if they had not at one point done a tremendous amount for me. So let's start there. The spiritual experience I had with alcohol. In Latin, they associate spirits with alcohol. So I must have had a viable, powerful experience that provided me with some type of psychic change for alcohol to take a prevalent role in my life. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I was sitting at a pool party. I was between... I didn't have my driver's license yet, but I was getting close. So 15, 16 years old. And, you know, my name is Tarek, so you already know it's odd. I look Irish, but Tarek is not an Irish name. And so I already didn't fit in growing up. I had red hair. I had freckles. I was pale. And I just felt awkward. But I never had a problem making friends. I was a chameleon. I could be friends with any group of people. And I remember sitting at this pool party, and I was terrified because there were a lot of cute girls there that I wanted to talk to, but I didn't have the courage to talk to them. There was also a group of guys that were, they were jumping off the tool shed. Uh, it was about, I'd say maybe, I don't know, seven to ten feet away from the deep end of the pool. So they were clearing this concrete and diving into the deep end of the pool. Now, I'm terrified of heights. Ten feet terrifies me. I like the ground. I like my feet firmly planted on the ground. And so I'm sitting there with a couple of friends, feeling awkward. And somewhere between the second and the fifth drink, sudden spectacular upheaval. I had a profound alteration in my reaction to life, a vast change in feeling and outlook, a personality change to overcome my insecurities. And I got up on that shed and I jumped in the deep end of the pool and I got out and started talking to everybody. Because the funny thing about alcohol, it didn't only change me, it changed all of you, right? It made everyone tolerable. Everyone else also had a psychic change. I wasn't, I wasn't looking for drunkenness. I was looking for a new state of consciousness. Because up to that point, my life was psychically painful. So I needed an effect to be produced. And just like that, I discovered the power of alcohol. And then the relationship and the love affair would ensue. And I would represent it to these other substances that allowed me to drink longer and for many days at a time without sleeping. And they would take me down a path. And I tell that story because it's important to see why it is that we develop this relationship with alcohol. And that was when I look back and I reflect on my time, I see it. And I see the progressiveness of it when I look at, you know, when I'm, when I'm taking someone through the steps, the physical aspect of our illness is probably the easiest part to see. Once I start, what happens? The simplest way that I can put it, all bets are off. I activate a fire inside of me, and that fire burns and burns, and I can't put the fire out. The fire goes out when it wants to go out. Or I activate, I I bring this monster to life, and the monster goes to sleep when the monster wants to go to sleep. And so I look at all those, those instances of being under the grips of the phenomenon of craving, and anything that showed up on my path, I would destroy if the fire was burning or the monster was awake. And so as a result of all of the things I did, you know, the pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, what I equate that to is all the things I swore I'd never do that I did. You know, our first speaker, Hilda, talked about the goalposts, moving it back and moving it back. You know, or the mind of the alcoholic, that chronic mind. Not only does it attempt a desperate experience in the first drink over and over, but it does. It buys into the lie that the problem is I keep buying these, I keep selling these curtains to these people. I don't need to hang out with these people anymore. They're the problem, right? The alcohol is not the problem. The problem is that I don't have the right job. 
wait, no, no, the problem is I'm not in the right relationship. So I come up with all these reasons and I mount them, but I never take a look at what the, what the real problem is. And that's the illusion and the delusion that our big book talks about. So another story that I want to share with you is what happens when we're under the grips of this phenomenon of craving. Uh, because there's a line in the doctor's opinion. It says, this explains many things for which we could not otherwise account for. And I sat in big book studies for years, always reflecting on what that means. And then I stumbled across a man who had an in-depth conversation with me about what that means. And so for years, the behavior and the things I did when I was on a run or spree created a tremendous amount of guilt and shame, which exacerbated the problem because I... I, I for lack of better words, I hated myself. And when I was sober, I was overthinking and over-identified with that state of being, of self-loathing. In order to evaporate that, I would put alcohol in my body along with other substances. And so I'm on a five-day run in Las Vegas. I missed several flights trying to leave Las Vegas. (laughs) And my girlfriend and I finally get back to Atlanta... And I head straight to the house because I was a mastermind and I left money before I went to Vegas at the house, knowing full well what I was going to need to do when I got back was to keep the run going. And on this particular day, now I I was an emotional terrorist to my family. Um, One of the things I found out when I went to make amends to my mother um, was that she uh, would go to her very high-stress job with people's like literally, if my mom, my mom's a pharmacist in an ICU at a university hospital, and she's in charge of the doses for individuals that are on life support or in critical condition and so forth. And so if she gets a dose wrong, she can cost someone their lives. And so she's not sleeping because she doesn't know where her son is. Her son does not communicate with her. She doesn't know if I'm alive. She doesn't know if I'm dead. Well, on this particular day, this amazing woman decides she wants to show up at my house. Uh, Now, granted, you know, on a five-day run, you can only imagine the state that I'm in at this point. And and, and I'm walking back out the door to keep this party going. And she tries to stop me. And so the monster was there in the midst of that physical craving. And I picked up a Dirt Devil vacuum cleaner, And I threw it at my mom's head as hard as I could. And I called her things that no son should ever say in the presence of his mother. And she didn't know. I could tell by the look in her eyes she was not looking at her son. And so I carried a tremendous amount of guilt and shame for years. And I bounced in and out of this program for three years. Um, Never have, you know, I went to big book studies. I academically and intellectually worked the physical part of the first step, and the mental part of the first step. And I looked at my unmanageability, but the part of the step I can't work, which is surrender, had not been given to me. So without the surrender, there is no rigorous honesty. I think the two come hand in hand. And when I sat down and had this discussion with this man, he finally explained to me, if you really understand what powerlessness is physically, to activate that physical craving and to do the pitiful and incomprehensible things that involve other people, to think you could have done different means you don't understand the first step. And if you can reflect back on your experience and see the powerlessness physically of what we do that anything that, to anything or anyone that gets in our path, you will lose the guilt and shame that you have because I've sponsored enough fathers Uh, I've I've sponsored mothers. I understand that this is very hard for people to understand, to intellectually wrap their mind around the idea that they could not have done different. But if you don't have power, you don't have choice, you don't have control. It's not like I sit up here 11 and a half years sober and I woke up and I have a choice today because that would assume that I now have power and control again. 
It's just not one of the things I choose over anymore. I've been placed in the position of neutrality. I'm not fighting it. I'm not avoiding it. That's the magical promise in our big book, which is a 10-step promise. You know, cease fighting. And that's what I want to leave you with as the most important aspect of understanding the physical component of our illness. That once we start, we cannot stop. Now, the big book's very redundant. It repeats itself over and over because it knows we're knuckleheads. It tells you what it's about to tell you, then it tells you, then it tells you what it just told you. And so on page 44, at the beginning of We Agnostics, the first paragraph sums up everything we've done in the book. And that's what it's going to sum up the physical and the mental. But I'm going to backtrack to page 23 because on page 23, they tell you that the, the, the observations we just made about the physical craving are academic and pointless. The issue is why does Tarek attempt the desperate experiment of the first drink? If years and years of debacle show him exactly what's going to happen, why can't he bring into his consciousness with sufficient force the pain of the memory of the suffering and the pain and humiliation of a week or a month ago? Why do I attempt a desperate experiment of that first one over and over? When you're sponsoring people, at least when I'm sponsoring people, this is the most difficult part of the first step to get them to see, that they don't have a choice. I get guys, I'm taking them through, they relapse, they come back. I say, okay, did you choose your relapse? Well, of course I chose the relapse. I'm like, I've, I've failed you as a sponsor because you do not understand what it means to lose the power of choice. And so we go back to page 24. Now, page 24 that page changed my recovery. The first three years of bouncing in and out, I just was not present. My eyes, my eyes were looking at the page, but my mind was traveling the universe every time we read page 24. And it says, for most alcoholics, not all, for reasons we don't understand, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our willpower becomes practically unavailable. At certain times, we can't bring into our consciousness with sufficient force. What are the most important words in that paragraph? At certain times. Because for years, I thought if I knew what the circumstances were that were going to cause me to drink again, I just needed to avoid those circumstances. I don't know about you, but that didn't work. Right? So, what does that translate into? For me, it translates into I need to go at, like Dr. Bob in his nightmare, he, tell, he talks about if we go after this with one half the zeal that we go after a drink, our Heavenly Father would never fail us. For me, I didn't even see one half zeal. I said, I need to do this just like I did that because I don't know when that day is coming for me. And the, the, the sad truth is, and I, I, it's just something I've watched from going to a lot of conventions. I don't know if we do a countdown here this weekend, but you're going to see something. You're going to see a lot of people with zero to one, a lot of people from two to five, five to ten drops, ten to fifteen drops, fifteen and over drops drastically. And so one of my great mentors, he used to say, he's like, look, very few people get sober in Alcoholics Anonymous stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and die sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. Otherwise, our meetings would be held in auditoriums and in places like the Staples Center all the time. But they're not. They're not. And I truly believe it links back to the misunderstanding of this part of the step. Because I've watched a lot of people over the years, they become watchmen for the circumstances. They know the certain time. They know what the day looks like when they may possibly pick up a drink. So they just need to protect themselves from that. At certain times, says, I have no idea when those times are coming for me. And that's the most baffling feature of alcoholism. The utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. Now, when, when, we, when we learn about the jaywalker in the big book, I had that experience of going into the hospital... The hospital my mom works at, they come down there, they give me all these pamphlets, they're telling me, you need to get some help, they're telling me, I'm going to die if I keep doing what I'm doing, and where do you think the first place I go when I leave there? The liquor store. Well, actually, I walked across the street to meet up with my buddy to say, hey, let's come to my house, he goes, go get some alcohol, and go get a couple other things, and I'll meet you at your house. 
This is after I left, right? And so that inability to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force is what, what kept me out there for so long. But sitting in that big book study that night and seeing those words, it's almost like the ink was wet. And I saw them in three dimensions for the first time. And it was grounded into me at a cellular level that I have to live this way of life the same way I live that way of life. And I'm very grateful that the mentality that I exhibited out there has followed me in here. And that's the only way I know how to do things. I mean, I guess that's maybe one of those situations where a character defect has now, or liability has become an asset for me. You know, the fact that I want the best. You know, I wanted the strongest drinks. I wanted the best dope. I want the best recovery. That's the only option for a guy like me. And then the thing is, not everybody in these rooms has to do what I do. And it does, you know, not everybody is the same. Um, you know, in the chapter to the wives, sometimes when I take guys through the steps, when we're looking at the first step, the first thing we do is let's look at these four types of drinkers in the back of the book and see if we're a type one, type two, type three, type four. Because the closer you are to type four on this spectrum of choice that we're talking about here with the mental aspect of the first step, the more you're going to have to live this way of life with the same amount of energy you live that way of life. Not everyone in here, it says most. Alcoholics. Not everyone in here has lost the power of choice. And we got to remember our big book is written by low-bottom drunks. And because of the way everything has evolved, not everybody in here fits the descriptions that are in this book. But this way of life is beneficial to all. So I, I'm gonna, I want to include, I'm not here to separate anybody. You know, but what I, when one of the things, whenever I do this, you know, my intention is always to, to somehow help create better, more effective sponsors. And so every time I speak from the podium, it's about the, the desire to maybe get someone to look at things a little bit different so they can walk away from here and implement a new practice. Right? I'm also, I mean, our book was written by a salesman. I'm up here trying to sell you on the program of recovery. Right? This, is, this, is, this is a sales job up here. I'm giving you a pitch. I'm trying to do it in an attractive way. I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I'm trying to show you precisely what I have done to recover from the seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And, you know, that's, that's the first half of the first step. Um, this, this other part of the step, the, the unmanageability, right? For years, I thought that my life was an, unmanageable because of my relationship with alcohol and these other substances. And so when you remove the alcohol, my life should become manageable. Um, that was not my experience. Uh, it actually, my unmanageability got worse when you start to look at unmanageability on an internal level. You know, it's easy, you know, to see how things can straighten out externally really quick when you remove alcohol from the, the equation. You know, we get the jobs. We're hard work. I mean, we, we're motivated people. Some of the most hardworking people you will find on this planet are in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, we, we're go-getters. We, we'll get the job done. And so we'll get money. And we'll get assets, and we'll get relationships, and we equate that with recovery, and that's not always the case. And so the unmanageability, when they, when they describe it on page 52, the problems with personal relationships, you know, a prey to misery and depression, full of fear, feeling useless, not being of real help to other people, feeling useless, um, which is, in my opinion, probably the worst place for an alcoholic to be. Right? And that's what our 12th step in our service, that legacy and the 12th step, that is there specifically to give us usefulness, to give us meaning and a sense of purpose. Because we've always been looking for it. Our passions and our desires when it was related to alcohol, you know, it just covered up. We wanted that purpose. We wanted that fellowship. We wanted that unity. We were just walking the wrong path at the time. And so the unmanageability... I didn't hit the bot. I hit a bottom with the second half of the first step at 15 months. All right, and I, the first 15 months, the way it was, you know, the first step was taught to me at first was, you know, my life was uh, unmanageable because I had a mental obsession. I couldn't pay my bills. And I couldn't be in a relationship because all I thought about was alcohol and these other substances. And, and so, 
take the alcohol away, and, and now my life should be manageable. It wasn't the case because I started to struggle. I began to experience anguish and despair and the judgment of all the personal relationships and the demanding, you know, unhealthy dependence or unhealthy demands, as Bill describes it, with when it comes to emotional sobriety. Um, you know, I was a step one and a step 12 guy for the first 15 months. That was it. There was the 10 other steps didn't exist after I worked them the first time. That was it. Sponsor a bunch of people, and that was it. And so I hit the bottom with the second half of the first step, and then I realized that that was the breeding ground for the mental obsession. So I started to, like, connect the dots. In the doctor's opinion, he introduces us to the spiritual malady, which is another way of saying untreated alcoholism or unmanageability once you've been around for a while. And I saw those words, restlessness, and I thought of feeling uneasy and then irritable and easily annoyed and discontented and just not satisfied. And I realized when I looked back and reflected in all those brief periods of sobriety I'd had in those three years that I would attempt the desperate experiment when the first, of the first drink when I was uneasy, easily annoyed, and not satisfied. It was like a spring tightening in my chest. And it was just tighten, and it would tighten, and I would have to have relief. I needed a drink. I had to have a drink. And thank God the drink was there because I might have taken or made the ultimate sacrifice that the book talks about. And there, in my time here, I've, I've suggested to quite a few people to go drink because I knew the state of consciousness they were in. They were heading for a darker place if they didn't drink. They weren't taking the steps necessary to bring about the recovery. And so the drink was a better option than the ultimate sacrifice. You know, I've had my character assassinated for it. You know, the funny thing is some of them are still out there drinking controllably and doing well. Others found their way back in. You know, I, I, get, I get people will talk, uh, accuse me of talking about God too much. And I, my, my philosophy is, well, if God takes them out, alcohol, bring them right back. You know? That's the way I look at it. And it was when I connected the dots of a... Of, now, the, the spiritual malady and the bedevilments that are on page 52, that's not <laughs> reserved for us alcoholics. That is a human problem. That is a human condition. You know, we are alcoholics because our solution to that human condition was alcohol, and that's why we fell in love. You know, we found that magical elixir, and it solved many of our problems, but then like a boomerang... It all but cut us to ribbons. And for me, I take the three-part problem in the first step, which is the mental aspect, the utter inability to leave alone no matter how great the necessity or the wish, the physical aspect that once I start, I cannot stop. All bets are off most of the time, nine times out of ten maybe. But that's all rooted in this, this human problem, the soul sickness that we have. And so when I take someone through the steps and I'm trying to share my first step experience with them, I will translate our three-part problem to our three legacies. If you want to solve the mental problem, you give yourself to the recovery process. That's the base of our triangle. The recovery process in in that triangle is, for me, the first 11 steps. All right. Some people may say 10 because, you know, we turn our will over on page 63 and then by page 85 we've got it back, 22 pages. But a lot happens in those 22 pages. <laughs> and then and if we do that, and like I love the big book's definition of our insanity in the first step. Insanity is in the first step. I go to a lot of step two meetings and the discussion ends up being about insanity. But the insanity is not in the second step. The hope is in the second step. Our hopelessness is in the first step and that's related to our insanity which is the lack of proportion and the ability to think straight. I have found in my experience of, of working the steps and taking people through the steps that you will think straight way more often and you will have more proportion than you've had in the past if you work the steps, which is recovery. The unity, we, we take our mind into the recovery process, the unity that we find in this fellowship, it's not just going to meetings. And Hilda mentioned it a little bit in her talk. It's getting a home group. 
It's going to group conscience on a regular basis. It's getting on a first name basis with everybody in the group. It's developing an accountability network where you're, you know, you are willing to share your dark passenger with the people in your network without any fear of judgment. So you can start to compare notes on when their dark passenger shows up in their lives or their shadow is with them, that they're able to, to embody their shadow and drag it into the light. And that's how we overcome those struggles. And that's how they become a spiritual experience. But what do we see in the rooms? I don't know about what happens in Los Angeles, but I know in Atlanta, and I've seen enough in, in almost 12 years to know that people walk into the home group, they're dressed to kill, you ask them how they're doing, they put the smile on their face, they tell you they're doing great, and I've seen this, and they go home and commit suicide. Now, I've traveled enough to know that that does not just happen in Atlanta. And so one of the things that, I, that breaks my heart is when I see people come into meetings and they feel like they, they, they look like they're alone. They look like they don't belong. And that's, what that, that's why our legacy of unity is so important in, in the fellowship that we crave, which is so much more than going to meetings that will solve the problem of the sense of separation and it will bring us together. And then we feed our spirits and we get that sense of purpose and we defeat the uselessness by attempting to carry this message. And carrying the message is not just sponsorship. It's, it's putting, you know, it's, it's everything that comes from feeling useful in our fellowship. Being a part of this committee that put on this event. You know, being of service this weekend, sharing in meetings, going to the meeting before the meeting, going to the meeting and staying for the meeting after the meeting. These are the things I was taught. And so when, I, when I'm up here giving a talk about the first step and I'm breaking it down mentally, physically, spiritually, we have our, our, our steps and our legacies to be a guiding light for us, almost as like a compass. So, you know, as I sponsor guys and I sit down with them, I ask them, locate yourself using the circle and triangle. Tell me where you are in recovery. Tell me where you are in unity and tell me where you are in service. And we equate this. We talk about it in terms of the language of the first step. And these are the, this is the mechanical and academic part of the first step. It really is, because I can sit down and we can all do the self-examination that the first step requires and find what we find mentally, physically, and spiritually. There's this part of the first step that nobody in this room can work, because I would have worked a surrender before I lost my home, before I filed bankruptcy, and before I was incarcerated. I would have. I would have made up my mind and said, enough is enough. I'm, I'm done. I surrender. Here's the white flag. And that, that's not my experience. What happened was on the, the evening of November 5th in 2007, I was arrested. I was traveling around the country, living out of hotel rooms, and I had two drug trafficking charges. I was in the state of Florida. Um, and so um, I stayed up all night in, in that jail. It was an inner city jail. It was a rough place. I'm sitting on the cot on the edge um, on the edge of my cot in my cell as the sun's coming up. And what I'm going to describe to you is a spiritual experience, and it's also my surrender. And you can reflect back on your experience and see if you can identify it. Um, I think all of us have that, that turning point. You know, genuine, we stand at the turning point. The turning point's always rooted in genuine surrender. And so the first realization I had, and this is a thought that was injected that my thinking mind did not create, was that it was Jason's birthday and it was my new sobriety date. And I refer to it as my rebirth date. I was reborn on that date. Not on the third step. I was reborn that morning because Jason was one of my closest friends that had died of a drug overdose on my birthday in 2003. And the first conscious thought I had on the morning of November 5th, 2007, that was my new sobriety day. Right? And it's almost like, I think it's in, in Fred's story where he talks about he knew his problem had been solved. It was like as if Fred committed 
And he knew the problem had been solved. And so much of what we do here is about commitment. And when I take guys through the steps and I tell them, if you're committed to this way of life, it doesn't matter what step we're on or how quickly or slowly we're moving, you'll be safe and protected. As long as it's the commitment. Everything else has to be secondary. Has to be. And so I had that realization. Nobody in my family picked up my phone calls. I called my best friend and my brother. They all hung up the phone on me. The funny thing is that best friend that hung up the phone on me, I spent the week with him leading up to tonight. And it just, I just had that realization. Uh, and that's one of the magical things that this program will, will, will provide to us is the restoration of those relationships. Um, and so they were passing around these books in the pod. And there were two books that I read. There were spiritual books, religious books. And they, they talked about things that I heard you folks talk about. And so the, the, the message was being received. And so I began to have these thoughts about going back to Alcoholics Anonymous. I even had these other visions of the, these two men that had tried to carry the message to me years before, one of which had a big book study at his house that I used to go to on Monday nights. And I kept thinking about these two men. And there was no active liar in my head trying to talk me out of it. This is an attribute of surrender. We all have a liar. Everyone in this room tonight has a voice that's lying to you. It's there. What happens when surrender happens is that voice goes into remission. It goes into remission. Now, it's going to reassert itself. Right? And over the progression of alcoholism, the voice's liar gets louder and louder. It was the voice that was talking to Hilda when it told her, oh, I shouldn't sell, I shouldn't hang out with people that buy my curtains. That's the voice. That voice was not active for me as I was receiving those messages. And so, like I said, nobody picked up my phone calls. My parents didn't want anything to do with me. I had another gentleman who I was in business with that knew it might be in his best interest to help me get out um, of jail. And so he paid for me to get a lawyer. Um, and I go to an arraignment. They, they had me in there, I can't remember for how long, seven to ten days. And they took me to the courthouse across the street from the jail. And I was shackled at my ankles uh, and my wrists to all these other grown men. And I can't tell you the last time I remember seeing my mother uh, at that point. And uh, I remember the lawyer approaching. They had us all in this box. And I asked him if he'd talked to my mom or he'd seen my mom. And this is when I, this is when I was split wide open. He says, she's in the gallery right behind you. Turn. And so as I turned, it was as if everything fell into time-lapse photography and started moving uh, not the way it normally moves. And I saw this light tunnel between my mother and myself. But what I witnessed was a frail woman who looked like she hadn't eaten in I don't know how long. Her eyes were sunk in her head. They were black, and she almost collapsed in the courtroom. And something in me broke. A friend of mine describes it as being split wide open, and, and that's what happened to me. For the first time in my adult life, doing that to other people became unacceptable. It's funny. For years, I listened to all the treatment centers, and I listened to those well-intentioned, well-meaning people that told me that acceptance was the answer to all my problems. The funny thing is, the answer to all my problems was unacceptance. It was unacceptable to do that to people. And from that unacceptance, I became willing to do whatever I had to do to never have the capacity to hurt another human like that. Because that's what alcoholism robs us of, holding on to our humanity. We lose our humanity as a result of alcoholism. And because of my unacceptance in that moment, I made a decision to be human. Because humans don't do that to each other. Not if you are attempting to, to be a human. And that's the part of the first step that some people ha- are, receive a gift. That was my gift. We talk about it in the book, The Gift of Desperation. You know? 
You know, it, it, it also, as I've sponsored men over the years, intuitively sometimes I know when that, that, that thing is not there. And it breaks my heart because I just want to give it to everybody. Um, but the funny thing is we talk about we, we keep what we have by giving it away. I don't think that's true. We get it by giving it away. That's how I got it. Because there was a desire in me to, to give the next guy. And that's, that's what I learned from all of the great teachers I've had. That I pay this by, by carrying it forward. They also taught me something else. And it has to do with the first step. For years I thought, you know, I was, I'm the new person. I'm the most important person in the room. And that's only, <laughs> that's only half true. That's only half true. If the, new, if the newcomers in our fellowship are the lifeblood, well, our lifeblood has to have a heart to pump through. All right. And that heart is those of us that are actively working a 12th step out here so we can complete the circle. Um, and this, for me, all wraps into the first step. My relationship with the first step determines my relationship with every other step that follows. Uh, when I'm taking a guy through the steps and he's not writing inventory, the first discussion I'm going to have with him is like, do you really think this is a step four problem? Or you just don't see the connection with writing inventory and whether or not you're going to pick up a drink. Because some, for some reason, you think now you have some choice in the matter. And so as we go in deeper into each step, it it's re-solidifies my relationship with the first step. But I'll be the first to tell you there are times over these 11 and a half years where I, I am un- unconscious to that idea. And then I will balk if I don't see the reality of my first step. You know. You know, my goal tonight was to, to create an air of hopelessness in our, in our, in our first step um, because the second step's about hope. Now, I try not to use profanity, and I have done a good job tonight. But I only use words that are profane when I have no other la- word in the English language to get my point across. So what the first step has to show you is that you're fucked. <laughs> And if you see how fucked you are in the first step, you'll become willing to do whatever you have to do to unfuck yourself. But we don't see that. We don't see what we're up against. Now, forgive me for my profanity, but you guys see why I don't have another word to get that point across. This is, this is what, you know, that's the, 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 what we're up against in this first step. Utter powerlessness, power, choice, and control, the triple crown. You know, we're like men who have lost our legs. We don't grow new ones. But I'm, I'm fascinated by how many people I know, and it works for them. I'm not saying they're wrong. It just I don't have experience with that. Um, my, create, my loving God doesn't give me a choice over whether or not I drink because that's something that might kill me. So why not just remove the choice altogether? You know? So my array of choices, right? This is the best way I can illustrate that part of the first step. And I'm spending time on this part of the first step because it's the most confusing for people to see. So making a, it's not like we don't have a choice all the time. It's an intellectual sorting out process. Would you guys agree that that's what a, making a choice is? You sort things out, you examine option A, and you either accept it or reject it. There's a reason the authors of the big book, the word denial is only in the book once, the first 164 pages. And it is when Bill is referring to his dad, Denying the influence of the spheres in Bill's story. Nowhere else does it use the word denial. Now, alcoholics don't suffer from denial. Al-Anons suffer from denial. We suffer from delusion, (laughs) illusion, obsessions, and not being able to tell the difference between what's true and false. That's what we suffer from. And I think the authors of the big book were in, there was purpose in, in that. I could be wrong, but that's the assumption that I work with. And so when we make a choice, we examine our options and we accept them or reject them. Deny comes from the ability to have a choice. And so let me describe a typical day in Tarek land. All right, so I party. I go, to, I go to happy hour on a Thursday night for the magical one drink, right? Well, what happens? I don't have, you know, what happens is Tarek takes a drink and the drink takes Tarek. 
And somewhere, Tarek's removed from the equation, the drink is drinking the drink. And so then I end up wandering the streets of downtown Atlanta. Five or six in the morning, I go home, chain smoke a bunch of cigarettes, eat some type of sedative. And I was an analyst. I was a financial analyst at this time. I had a corner office with a putting green in it. And so I stay up all night. I go to work. I try to sneak past the receptionist so she doesn't make eye contact with me. I go to my office. I close the door. I put do not disturb on the phone. And I wait until I'm able to converse with another human, which usually happened between 9 and 10 o'clock. And the door opens. All right? And so about 11 o'clock, my buddy Dave comes in the office. What do you, hey, you want to grab some drinks after work? Oh, no, no. This is an intellectual sorting out process. I've just been presented with an option, which is getting drinks after work. And I examine my options. No, I got mom's birthday this weekend. It's Friday. Mom's birthday party Saturday. Not a good idea. I still haven't paid all my roommate bills from last month. I don't get paid until next Friday. No, I reject. I reject. No, no, I'm not going to have drinks tonight. That was around 11. Around 1 o'clock, my other buddy, Chris, comes in the office. He says, hey, man, we're going up to Doc's. That's the bar right down the street from the, the office park. You want to go with us? We're all going after work to catch a few drinks. No. I go through the intellectual sorting out process. I make a choice. I make a choice not to go. Yeah. I have access to my willpower. 5 o'clock, pack up. Go down to the parking garage, pull out of the parking garage, pull up to the traffic light. If I go straight, I go home. If I turn right, I go to docks. The same intellectual sorting out process that was available to me all day long has been suspended. My willpower is practically unavailable. I'm without defense against the first drink. I end up at the bar, and I set off another terrible cycle. That's what it means to not have a choice at a certain time. Our willpower becomes practically unavailable at certain times. Thank God for the first miracle in Alcoholics Anonymous, which is separation. That one has to be sudden, and it has to be profound, and it has to happen quickly. The second miracle, which is returning sanity, which is how I'm going to dovetail this into the second step, that one's slow and arduous. The sanity around the first drink comes quickly. But then the sanity around the other areas in our life, because I know I'm not the only one in here that has struggled with other, you know, there's the, the money and the relationships, the food, whatever it is. Lack of proportion and the ability to think straight. It's there, the precise definition of insanity. And... I think about things in Alcoholics Anonymous that are basic, which are sustainable and permanent in most cases, and what are marginal. The funny thing is when we are crushed by a self-imposed crisis that we can't postpone or or evade, the voice of the liar goes into remission. But you know what the funny thing is? Health brings him back. That's, That's a cold truth. I get crushed by the self-imposed crisis, complete deflation occurs, and then I get health. And that's one of the things that's marginal. It comes and goes. But I've watched people hinge the status of their recovery and their spiritual condition on health. And a lot of them fail, if not all of them. We see the body image. It's all about going to the gym, you know, and, we, we, and the supplements. And the pre-workout, I've watched it. And so health is something that's marginal. It's not basic. The other thing is financial, wealth. You know, I know a lot of people that uh, are in very fit spiritual condition and they have several problems when it comes to finances. Um, but I've watched how, a guy, how the reconstruction of the ego happens. I get a guy, he comes up to me at the home group. Hey, man, will you take me through the steps? Let's grab some coffee. We grab coffee a couple days later. I mean, this guy's ready to do some work, right? He's skinny as hell. He's shot out. And we are starting to do some work. And 30 days later, 
he is healthier and he's got some money in his pocket and a girl's talking to him and he think he's recovered. That's as recovered as he's ever going to get. And it, what, the way I see it is in the actions and the commitment goes out the window. And then we have serenity. You know, I've been very unserene at several moments in my 11 and a half years, but somehow I've still found the sincerity to do the practices that come with the rest of the steps, specifically prayer and meditation. You know, one of the, the discussions I have when I sit down and I sit down with a first step and I'm talking to a guy, I'm like, look, the principles are the 12 steps. There are no other principles right now for us. You know, I get that somewhere along the way we came up with these principles the one words behind the steps, but what I have found, this is just my experience. I've watched a lot of people work the promises and wait for the steps to come true. <laughs> I don't know where that comes from. But my way of combating that when I'm talking to someone early on is the steps are the principles. We don't claim adherence, perfect adherence to these principles. We want to grow wrongs along spiritual lines. So those things are, are marginal in my opinion. But the sanity, that is such a basic thing and it's the most beautiful thing. Because for me, if you had told me what were the circumstances that were going to cause me to pick up a drink, I would have told you losing my father and my marriage in the same month would probably do it and becoming homeless. Well, that happened to me. Yeah. March of 2017. Right. Wife asks me to move out. I'm taking care of my father in hospice at home as he's transitioning. And I have nowhere to live. I have no anchor. But you know it led to the most sincere prayer life I've ever experienced. Because my need to have God in my life increased exponentially. So as I'm on my knees, it became a begging and a poverty that I had to have God or there's no way in hell I was going to make it out of that. And I had some wonderful men that were walking me through that experience. And that's, that's the first step in Tarek land. Out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We look at that physically, mentally, spiritually, and that surrender piece. And the way I evaluate these days whether or not I am surrendered is I, I try to keep people in my life that have spiritual consent that I share everything with. All the dark crannies are out on the table. That degree of accountability. And as I share that, not only telling on myself, but attempting to describe the psychological impact that has on attempting to walk a spiritual path and still living with your shadow. These are things we need to talk about. So I want to thank Ralph. I want to thank everyone on the committee for putting this event on. And if I said something that pissed you off, take out a piece of paper, put four columns on it, and put my name in the first column. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.